I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source. When no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been and may someday be again a Jew, or a Quaker, or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. That was the voice of then-presidential candidate John F. Kennedy. It was September 12, 1960, and Kennedy was delivering a speech to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, a group of Protestant ministers, on the issue of his religion. It was a time in American history when no Catholic had been elected to the highest office in the land, and many questioned whether Kennedy, as a Catholic, would be able to govern independently of his church. Kennedy, of course, went on to become the 35th President of the United States. Fast forward now nearly 60 years to 2019, and separation of church and state has become a dirty phrase in many religious circles. Evangelicals and Catholics alike are proclaiming that America needs to return to God, that our government needs Jesus, and that the Ten Commandments ought to be posted in courthouses. And while I would agree that America, yes, the world, needs Jesus now more than ever before, I would suggest to you that when it comes to matters of faith, God doesn't need the government's endorsement. Don't get me wrong, I love Jesus, and because of that, I seek to obey the Ten Commandments. And my faith even helps to inform my understanding of certain public policy issues. And it's precisely because of my love for Jesus and the Bible that I support the wall of separation, as Thomas Jefferson put it, between the church and the state. My kingdom, Jesus said in John 18.36, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Well, someone might ask, shouldn't Christians advocate for justice for the oppressed in our world? You bet we should. The Bible makes it clear that the legitimate purpose of a government is to ensure that people do no harm to each other and to promote peace and order in society. And as people of faith, we ought to be holding our leaders accountable to do justice when we see oppression around us. But when it comes to worship, religion, and private consensual moral issues, it's another thing altogether. No government has any right to legislate worship or private morality. 
And Christians ought to follow the teaching of Jesus and do unto others as you would have them do unto you, instead of seeking to legislate issues that ought not to be legislated. In the words of Thomas Jefferson again, the legitimate powers of government, he wrote, extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And that brings me to my guest today and our topic of discussion, a religious symbol on public land. Should we let it stand? Well, the current Supreme Court says yes. And Michael Peabody, a lawyer, prolific writer, founder of the ReligiousLiberty.tv website and president of Founders First Freedom, is with me today to discuss the American Legion case that the court just decided a few weeks ago. I think you'll enjoy our discussion. And don't forget, you can connect with Do Justice on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now. Hi, Michael. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. So you're a Christian, you're a lawyer, you're the president of Founders First Freedom. Tell us more about how you got involved with religious liberty and about the work that Founders First Freedom does. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I began working on religious liberty issues a long time ago when I was actually around 7th and 8th grade. Mm. Um, Our church had an opening for a religious liberty director. And nobody else wanted to do it, so I filled in. Mm-hmm. And I started doing a little newsletter and studying up on the issues. And as I studied on the issues, I began to learn more and more about it. And I decided I was going to go to law school and, and really study constitutional law. And so through the course of that, I, I attended Pepperdine University, um, graduated from there. And um, I did an internship there while with the Church State Council, which is part of the Pacific Union Conference for a summer, and I learned a little bit more about religious liberty, and I began writing articles for Liberty Magazine. Um, back in 2000, I wrote an article about school vouchers, and mm-hmm. I called the lure of school vouchers, you know, the idea that government funding doesn't come without strings attached. And it was interesting because I was writing the article while I was in law school, studying from some of the professors who were engaged in those topics at the higher level. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and eventually, I um, went back into regular private practice. I, I worked um, doing primarily insurance defense, employer defense, workers' compensation, that type of stuff. I worked for the church for about three and a half years, and then I rejoined my old firm here in Los Angeles, and I've been here ever since. But around 2008, I started a website called ReligiousLiberty.tv because I felt that there was a need in the church to have updated information about religious liberty topics as they come up. Anyway, a lot of times people will hear about something in the news that's happened about religious liberty, and they're really curious about what to do, what's going on, mm-hmm. and what side to believe. And so I realized that there was a need for an up-to-the-minute resource for people to look at, to understand the issues from a legal perspective. And so it became our mission not to be an entertainment website, but more to provide background information that people can use to understand the issues Mm -hmm. 
And as new things come up, they can draw on the information that they previously had about the cases and go forward. So over the course of you know 10 years or 11 years that we've been doing this, um, we've had several hundred articles about all kinds of issues of religious liberty as they've arisen. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we take pride in is being able to write articles on Supreme Court opinions the day they're announced. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, this week we wrote about the Cross case in Maryland. On the day the decision came out, um, we talked about denial of cert, or when the Supreme Court decided not to hear cases on the day that they came, those decisions came out as well. So we're, we try to be on top of it. And a couple of years ago, we joined with Founders First Freedom, which is a nonprofit organization that was started in the mid-2005 era. Um, by John Stevens and Wally Carson and a few other prominent Adventist attorneys and religious liberty advocates. And over time, um, I became involved in that organization, and a couple of years ago, I became the president of that organization. It's a nonprofit 501c3 organization, and we have been involved in radio interviews, podcasts. Um, We filed a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court in favor of the court hearing a Sabbath accommodation case earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And we're engaged in a lot of other activities that will really hopefully um, help further education and help people understand religious issues, liberty issues as they come up. That's great. Now, if somebody wants to be on your email list, I know you send out those um, emails when you write the articles same day as the Supreme Court opinion comes out, how can they sign up for your, your email? Well, what they can do is there's a sign-up sheet at or sign-up form on religiousliberty.tv. Mm-hmm. Religiousliberty.tv. Um, sometimes people think it's .com or .org or whatever, but it's .tv. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of the flagship publication for Founders First Freedom. Um, there's also a website, foundersfirstfreedom.org, that you can go to to learn more about the underlying 501c3 organization as well. Um, but yeah, you can sign up there. We send out the newsletters um, whenever there's breaking news. Um, we don't do it on a periodic basis, but if something comes up and that we think people need to know about, we, we send mm-hmm. it out right away. Yeah, no, and it's a great resource. Um, I've really enjoyed having that um, available. So thanks for doing that. Well, so thank you for talking again today with me. And actually the reason that, one of the reasons I uh, thought to have you here on the podcast was because I read your your email that came out the same day as uh, the Cross case from Maryland, the American Legion uh, versus American Humanist Association case that the court just decided a couple of days ago. And I thought, hey, that's a case that I think we ought to talk about because it, you know, a lot of different issues kind of come together in that case. Before we begin the actual discussion of that case, um, let's define some of the terms. And you'll be talking about some of them throughout, and, and of course you can do it at the time, but just one especially, I guess, is the term, the Establishment Clause. Um, I, I mean, I hope everyone's familiar with the First Amendment, right? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, uh, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the first part of, of the First Amendment to our, our Constitution here in the United States. But specifically, what is the Establishment Clause? And we're talking about that in this case. Well, the Establishment Clause essentially says that the government cannot establish a religion. That's the basic concept behind it. 
So you have to look at it back in the history of, of the United States and before the United States. Um, governments oftentimes would declare that their nations were under a certain religion and people would pay taxes to that religion. And um, the government would fund them, pay for pastors, and in fact, even today, if you go to, I believe Germany still has a state church, and several European countries do as well. And so the idea was that the government would not establish a state church, and the idea was that this would allow for freedom of religion because people would not feel that they were compelled to support a religion that they did not believe in, and it would also... um, allow religious groups to, to act without having to be afraid that the government would try to impose themselves upon those religious groups. Um, and the, there's the Establishment Clause, which has to do with the government establishing a religion, mm-hmm. and then there's the prohibiting the free exercise thereof, which is sort of the companion to that, where, where it says, you know, Congress is not going to engage in stopping you from religious free exercise. So if you have a church or if you personally have a belief and you're not hurting anybody else and you're following your belief, um, you're supposed to be able to do so and you're supposed to be accommodated. Um, There's been several definitional changes. Um, There's a famous case back in 1990 involving Native Americans who used peyote who were denied unemployment benefits. And the reason they were denied benefits was because they used peyote as part of their religious practice. Um, and then that decision, Justice Scalia said that the um, if they were allowed to follow their religious beliefs, then everybody could do it, and you ultimately end up with chaos where everybody would have their own religion. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of come back to haunt a lot of people because the government has moved more and more toward um, limiting free, um, free exercise of religion in certain cases where people are being compelled to act against their religious beliefs. Um, and it's primarily, you know, you see that in the wedding cake cases and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, the Establishment Clause has primarily had to do with a couple of other issues, which are state funding of religious activity um, and in religious actions or religious, not, not religious actions, but religious monuments. And, and I guess things like um, legislative prayers and those kinds of activities mm-hmm. where people have felt that these actions or these displays also would be emblematic or descriptive of an establishment of religion. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about this particular case. So uh, last term, I guess it was, the court heard um, a case that was brought by the American Humanist Association, I believe it was, and uh, tell us what the facts of this case are and kind of the, the procedural history, how it went through the courts and all of that. Well, back in the 1920s, there were a lot of World War II veterans, or sorry, World War I veterans um, who were coming back from the battlefield and the number of people had been lost. And in order to memorialize those who had died in this community um, in Maryland, they erected this cross and it had a plaque on it naming 49 soldiers who had died during World War I. And the cross, over time, it's, it's fairly large, um, had been on public, was put on public property um, at the center of an intersection. And I believe the cross is like 40 feet tall or something. Wow. And so people would drive past this every day, and it's, you know, very near Washington, D.C., and 
So the American Humanist Association saw the cross, and they were offended by it because they thought it, since it was on public land being maintained by public money, it constituted an establishment of religion. So they filed suit, and they looked into the history about how the cross was dedicated by religious people and how it was obviously a religious symbol, and they sued to have it taken down or moved to private property. The um, American Legion, which had initially put the cross up and which was defending its upkeep, um, obviously opposed that decision and that request. And so the suit was filed, and it was captioned as the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association. And on June 20 of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling, 7-2, to two, that the cross could stay. Okay. Now, there was very little question initially that the cross would be allowed to stay. And the reason for that was because it's politically very difficult to justify taking it down. Mm -hmm. And given the political climate of the United States at this point, it was not likely that that was going to happen. Right. And that's a political overlay, and I, I know that the court is non-political, but the reality is a lot of things impact the, the court. And so what I thought was going to happen was what happens in a lot of cases where a organization comes and sues a, you know, for an establishment clause violation. I was pretty sure that there was going to be a finding from the court that the American Humanist Association lacked standing to bring the case. In other words, they were not harmed enough to file litigation, mm -hmm. um, and that's called observer standing. Mm -hmm. And there have been a number of cases where observer standing has been used to to sort of um, quash these cases. But in this case, the although I believe one of the justices did reference the issue of standing, mm -hmm. I think it's uh, Gorsuch, yeah. yeah, he he said that you know he didn't think they should have had standing. The court decided to go ahead and hear the case, and they applied the rationale that's been used in cases like Marsh versus Chambers and the Town of Greece case where you had legislative prayers or city council prayers. And they said, well, this is simply a emblem of, you know, it's a, it's a social thing that brings people together. It's historical in nature, and it's something that's been around for a very long time. And therefore, it doesn't really offend anybody because ultimately, and, and this is sort of, the direction they went. It's a neutral symbol toward religion. It just references religion in general, but it's not really primarily there for a religious purpose. Um, Justice Ginsburg dissented along with Justice Sotomayor and argued that actually the cross is a very religious symbol, and the two groups who are most concerned about it being a religious symbol are devout Christians and atheists. Hmm. who view it as a as a religious symbol. Um, and of course, as a Christian, you know, the cross is the center of um, the entirety of the Christian faith. It's, it's where, you know, God, um, Jesus died on the cross and, and showed his love for everybody. And, um, you know, we were saved through his action on the mm -hmm. cross. So mm -hmm. it's not a neutral symbol to us. Mm -hmm. But the court sort of used a neutrality idea to allow it to continue to stand. Um, the the decision did not single out Christianity as the only religion that could be uh, supported through some type of public religious display, but the court did say that the age of the monument played a, played a role. Mm -hmm. So the you know, monument 
about 94 years old now. And therefore, it's old and it's been around forever and it can stand. Um, that's kind of an unsatisfying analysis because, you know, 100 years from now, um, will something that was erected now stand? Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, they kind of grandfathered the cross in without describing a date as to when it would have had to been up by. There's no, if, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, there's no uh, line in the you know, hardcore test there. I mean, I, I think the, the line that I extracted was the passage of time thus gives rise to a strong presumption of constitutionality. It's like this is the new test, but it's pretty vague, as you point out in your uh, email uh, article. Yeah, and so you have this passage of time idea, and it's, you know, I, I found the decision to be kind of unsatisfying because I like mm-hmm. to have a right line rule, but the, um, I, I got to thinking, well, what if a high school, public high school, decided to have a mural painted on its wall that depicted that memorial cross? Mm-hmm. Would that count as a passage of time, or would it be a depiction of a historical event mm-hmm. um, or a historical monument? And it's kind of, you know, I don't know what, what would happen with that. So it's interesting because on one hand, it seems like the court, uh, the majority here, um, are saying, okay, we admit that religion should not be established. Uh, we agree that religious symbols shouldn't be um, supported with taxpayer money or whatever, you know. Uh, at the same time, we're going to just, you know, deny that this is a religious symbol. We're going to say it's just a you know, historically significant symbol. Um, so it's almost like we're not quite being honest there in a way, but yet at the same time, they're they're still supporting this concept that the government shouldn't promote uh, religion. Would you agree with that? Or yeah, That's pretty much what it would be. I, I mean, if somebody wants to have a Afghanistan war memorial in the shape of a cross, they probably would be denied under this analysis. True, yeah. But another thing I, I found interesting about it was that the um, idea that they, they said, well, it could have been a Jewish symbol, it could have been any other type of symbol, it just happened to be a Christian symbol, mm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a basis for it. But I'm, you know, looking back in history, it's hard to see any examples of other religious groups being honored in civil religion in America. Mm-hmm, um, the mm-hmm. only place where you see it, and I think Ginsburg made a very wise determination in this issue, in her dissent, um, was in gravestones and, and cemeteries. Mm. Because you could have a Muslim symbol or a Jewish Star of David on a gravestone at the military military cemetery. Mm-hmm. But um, she said these are individual expressions of faith, mm-hmm. and the government recognizes those. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was interesting that across the board, the justices were very accommodating toward the idea that religion can be expressed in a public forum. It's just a matter of whether or not they exclude other religious symbols. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that can get in some interesting areas when it comes to, you know, a church of Satan or whatever. Sure. I mean, wanting to express themselves and whether or not they're given the same kind of open forum. But I thought it was kind of nice because there's not a... The the decision did not come out as um, pro-religious or anti-religious per se, mm-hmm. um, which was one aspect I did appreciate about it. But one of the things, that, and it's kind of you know technical, 
to think about, but I think it's, it's going to be a key issue going forward, is that the justices in this decision essentially abandoned the lemon test. Right. And the lemon test is basically what was used as a three-part rule to determine whether or not a government action violated the Establishment Clause. And so... And what was that test? Why don't you share that with our listeners, what the lemon test was? And so we talk about the lemon test. It comes from the... Uh, what year was that? 1971 case. 1971, Lemon versus Kurtzman. Kurtzman. Yeah, there are three, three tests. And... and and this has, you know, the other thing that you know you have to pay attention to is the fact that you have all kinds of establishment clause violations, mm-hmm. including funding violations, like a you know a state deciding to pay for a church. And so, under the Lemon Test, um, the three there are three parts. First, the statute must have a secular legislative purpose. Second, its principal or primary effect must be one that neither advances nor inhibits religion. And finally, the statute must not foster an excessive government entanglement with religion. So, any law put forward by the government must primarily be secular. It um, can't be designed to primarily influence religion or push religion on people or stop religion. And it must not engage the government too much in, in a religious practice. And I thought, you know, the test was not perfect, but it at least provided some type of rule that the court could follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very useful when it came to government funding of, of uh, organizations. Right. But, it, you know, it started to fade away in, you know, in recent years. And one of the more recent examples was the Trinity Lutheran case, where, the, where a church sued. Well, there was a, in the state of Missouri, there was a, Fund, there was funding made available so that um, pre- that that schools could have this resur- recycled playground surface, mm-hmm. and they could receive money to get this, you know, recycled material for their playgrounds. And a church applied and was denied because Missouri had a law in the Constitution that said that no government funding could go toward religion. And they sued, claiming that their rights were violated and they were being discriminated against. And the Supreme Court sided with the church and said, yes, they were discriminated against by the law in Missouri, and therefore they should receive the playground resurfacing money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I mean, there's all kinds of argument made that it had nothing to do with religion, but, you know, in my analysis at the time, I looked at the church that wanted to surface, resurface its playground, and the idea is when you go to a church, you go to their playground, you go to anywhere on the facility, um, that's going to be sort of a religious environment for you. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea, of it, in law, they call it pervasively sectarian. It's, this is a religious place. And the church, in order to get the money, said, no, 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 it's just a playground that's not religious at all. And I was thinking, well, what if you know, somebody wanted to use it for some type of ceremony that the church was religiously opposed to, would the church be able to prevent it from being used for that purpose? Mm-hmm. And there were a number of other questions that came up, but ultimately the Supreme Court said that the, you know, the funding should go to them. So that was a real strike against the Lemon Test. 
And that was from a funding perspective. And now we have the symbol perspective where mm -hmm. the Supreme Court pretty much flat out said, we are abandoning the lemon test. And did not really enunciate what was going to replace it, except to say that anything that's old can stay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are your concerns about, you know, the ramifications of this case? Because a lot of people of faith, especially in our society, uh, feel like, you know, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. And to many of them, this type of a decision by the court, where the court is upholding a religious symbol in society uh, that's been there for a long time, to a lot of folks, this is an example of the court doing the right thing. They're upholding godly traditions and uh, keeping God um, in society. To them, it's ridiculous to think that uh, it, it would somehow be unconstitutional to not allow a school to be able to take public money to resurface its playground or, in this case, to allow public funds to mow the lawn around a, a big cross at a busy city intersection and maintain the cross. So what are your concerns, you know, practically about why this matters to Christians? Well, there's a, you know, for, as a, from a practical standpoint, and I, and I actually, you know, I look at it actually from a religious standpoint because mm -hmm. government money does not come with strings attached. And in every case where a church or a religious organization or somebody has tried to argue that there should be a religious symbol in public or there should be funding or something like this, they've always argued that that symbol or that funding is not really going to be used for a religious purpose, but it's mm -hmm. just something that they're doing that's religiously neutral and ultimately doesn't matter spiritually. And I think um, from a Christian perspective, there's a sacredness that comes with these symbols. Doesn't mean the symbol itself is a you know an idol or something, mm -hmm. but what it mm -hmm. means sure. means something that's sacred and it's something that touches the heart. Um, you know, Second Timothy three five says that talks about um, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, mm. and from such turn away. So if you have something where it, it looks godly but it doesn't have that power of godliness, um, it's not good mm. for, for a Christian. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the examples I think of is, and I've used this before, um, I actually got this from Nick Miller way back in the, when the Ten Commandments arguments were going up before the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. uh, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there, um, there was an argument that they needed to have the, the Ten Commandments displayed in courtrooms. But that raised an interesting question, because the people who wanted to put it up said, well, if it's merely secular, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. We just want to put it up there as another form of law. And you had Roy Moore in, in Alabama putting the Ten Commandments monument in the rotunda of the Supreme Court. And you had all kinds of people arguing that this is very important stuff, but then it doesn't matter. So you're having that, the dual argument that mm -hmm. was in, internally consistent, I believe. Right. So... Let's say you are, um, here's Nick's example, and I, I really appreciate it. I've stolen it from him and used it many times. <laughs> but um, here's what it's like. Let's say you are accused of a crime and you are being brought into a courthouse. And you are, you're giving your pleading as whether or not you're guilty or not. So you look above you and you see the state seal. Let's say the California seal. Mm -hmm. We're in California. Okay, or, and next to it you see the Ten Commandments. 
okay? Mm-hmm. Now, every law has a remedy. The remedy for stealing in, in state law is mm-hmm. fine or imprisonment or, mm-hmm. or whatever. You're going to get punished. Mm-hmm. The penalty in the Ten Commandments, the remedy in the Ten Commandments is you'll be punished, but if you confess your sin, you'll be forgiven. Mm-hmm. But let's say you, you're in, in court, and so you're seeing these two symbols in front of you. If you confess to a judge in that situation, what will happen to you? You'll get the book thrown at you. Yeah, you'll get condemned, right? Mm-hmm. So here you are looking at the Ten Commandments without the power of the godliness, of mm-hmm. godliness without the power of forgiveness. Mm. And you are, um, you're kind of standing there, and so if you, if you, you know, we, we believe that there are two jurisdictions. You have jurisdiction of church and the jurisdiction of state together. Mm-hmm. And so you pay your tithes to the church, you pay your taxes to the state, and you recognize the authority of both, even though you're living in the same, you know, and both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you confess your sins to the court, you will have condemnation, right. which is the law of, of death in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's the law of condemnation. It's the law that says you are a sinner, and therefore as a sinner you must die. But you don't have that opportunity. You know, you're, you're, you're not given the divine remedy. The remedy becomes to you condemnation. And so, as I see these religious symbols, and they go up, and they don't have the form, they don't have the power of godliness behind them that makes them mean what they mean. You end up with condemnation. You end up with people who are being, um, you know, angry at people. You end up with these become symbols of division, not symbols of unity, mm-hmm. and they become nothing but a secular mockery of the divine reality. But let's just say that there are people who believe that those should not be just empty symbols, but they should that our government uh, should actively promote religion because, hey, you know, we want people to be moral and good and and even godly people. Um, you know, what would what would be your answer to people of faith? Um, you know, I, I think you're right. There's just a lot of dishonesty uh, or inconsistency, at least, when it comes to how you know, in the legal system, we promote these things as, oh, no, it's not a religious symbol. Uh, but, but you know, I mean, the average uh, religious American who may not understand this issue might say, hey, I want God in my government. I want those symbols to be actually meaningful. And so just, you know, zooming out even a little bit more, why would we not want that, in your opinion? And I think you've already well, answered that to uh, some extent. <laughs> That's actually a very interesting question. I mean, do you want the government in charge of your spirituality? Mm. Yeah, I meet a lot of people who say they don't want government in charge of their health care. Mm-hmm. They look at veterans' hospitals and they say they'll, you know, they're kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. They look at government bureaucracy, the DMV, and having to stand in line forever and paperwork getting lost and everything. And yet they, the same people who are concerned about government excess in terms of wanting to take over people's lives are um, very willing to let the government sort of take over the spiritual life of the people. Mm. And, you know, religious teachers have to be committed to faith. And to ask a person who is not religious to communicate an article of faith is asking for mockery. Mm -hmm. 
asking for somebody to you know come forward and just go through the motions and and who doesn't believe it and ultimately instills doubt. Faith has to grow in the heart. It can't grow by government. And we are at a time in history where and churches are very, very free to express themselves. Christians can express themselves. And what churches should seek to maintain is the ability to have free exercise of religion and then use that to spread the gospel rather than using that type of freedom to try to force the state to do what the church should be doing. Mm. And historically, we have a lot of examples, I think, and uh, you could, I'm sure, elaborate on this if you wanted to, you know, about uh, examples of, of uh, the church controlling, controlling the state uh, in ways that have led to um, persecution and all sorts of bad things. Um, I think a lot of folks think, well, you know, America has this Christian heritage. In this case, actually, you know, it implicitly um, acknowledges that and actually explicitly says that, too, to some extent, you know, that we have this this religious uh, civil religion in our country, this religious background and heritage and history. Um, and so I think for a lot of folks, you know, this is a, a Christian nation. Um, and yet you see our First Amendment, right, where we eventually wrestled as a society with what we were going to do, whether we were going to have um, an established church like they had up in you know, Connecticut and Massachusetts, or if we're going to go with the Virginia model that uh, Thomas and Mad or Jefferson and uh, Madison promoted, which was what ended up being our First Amendment. So, going to the to the history of of church and state, I think that's something that people ought to look at when they are thinking about uh, wanting America to be a Christian nation today. There's one thing I should should have mentioned, and this was Thomas's. Descent, Justice Thomas's descent. Oh yes, very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's something that I, a lot of, you know, it's a dissenting opinion. It was sort of a dissent and a concurrence. Mm-hmm. He agrees that church should. I mean, he agreed that the cross should continue to stand, except his argument was that the cross should continue to stand because it is not a First Amendment issue at all because. The First Amendment, you know, we talked about it earlier, says Congress shall make no law mm-hmm. respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it continues, says, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Um, Thomas's view is that the First Amendment only limits Congress. Mm-hmm. Not the states. And that states should be able to establish their own law. And of course, or establish their own church, sorry. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, you know, and if you read that First Amendment, it also talks about, you could also read it just as much to say, Congress shall um, not prohibit the free exercise, but a state could. Congress shall not abridge the freedom of state of speech, but a state could. Mm-hmm. And the same with the right to assembly. So the Thomas approach, I think, is, is very, it's quite troubling. It's, mm-hmm. And it's not something that, is confined to Justice Thomas, but it's something that shows up over and over in a lot of um, evangelical discussion on freedom of religion. Mm. And mm. the thing with the um, the First Amendment was it was incorporated into state law in something called the Fourteenth Amendment, which was after the Civil War, designed to make sure that everybody had access to the Bill of Rights, even in the states that had slavery. 
and the states that had seceded were required to sign the 14th Amendment as a condition of being readmitted to the Union. Mm. Um, and so there are a lot of people who say, oh, we need to go back to the way it was intended by the founders, but the founders actually, the way they drafted the Constitution was in such a way to describe wonderful principles of freedom mm-hmm. while also simultaneously not interfering with the practice of slavery in several states and leaving the issue of slavery to the states. So Thomas's argument um, may sound attractive to a lot of people saying, well, you know, yeah, the federal government can't tell us what to do about religion, but my state can. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, living in California, that would probably cut against religion quite a bit because we would have no access to the free exercise clauses they would in other parts of the country, but mm-hmm. other parts of the country may lose the establishment clause, and we would maintain that. So yeah. it's a matter of, I think he had a severe, um, significant misunderstanding of the Constitution, and I think that this is the first time that that has ever been raised in a Supreme Court decision, even though it does not show up in the main body of the argument. It's in the decision, and I believe that people are going to try to cite that later on as a basis for the state establishment of religion and um, may try to bring that issue forward. And it will be interesting to see if the you know, makeup of the court um, will allow that argument to stand at some point in the near future. And my nightmare scenario is that the Thomas interpretation of the First Amendment becomes a national interpretation because on a state-by-state basis, um, they can be very dangerous for freedom of religion. Absolutely. So for a little history uh, of some of these types of cases that involve school prayer, um, the Ten Commandments in public uh, buildings, um, there's actually another cross case from San Diego that uh, the court decided uh, several years back, football prayer, uh, football game prayer, this kind of thing. Um, Peter Irons has written a really good book called God on Trial. Um, the book was written back in 2007, so it's probably due for an update. But uh, just for some historical context and analysis of these cases, this is a great book for anybody who's listening to check out, I think. And it would give you some uh, just history and understanding of those cases in, in layman's language. Um, so, Michael, again, thanks so much for talking to me today. I have one more question for you, and that is, how can people of faith actually honor God and do justice by supporting this concept of separation of church and state? You know, I, I think you've made a good, some good arguments for why we have that and why it's a good thing. Um, how can people support that uh, today in our society where uh, it seems like if you're a person of faith, you're, you know, that's a suspect idea. And it seems like, you know, the court now is kind of veering away from some of these uh, ideals that we, we've had in the past. So what can people do practically to, to um, support the, those concepts? Well, um, I think there, there are several things. I mean, first of all, be a good person. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who make these arguments about religious liberty and about church and state, and they're using it to try to hammer other people in mm. submission. Mm-hmm. And so you want to, you know, being a, a good person is the basis of doing any kind of argument. If you want people to listen to you, if you want to influence friends, you know, people and win friends or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing was to learn, learn about it. 
you know, understand, you know, why you think what you think about separation of church and state. Um, be, you know, familiar with, with sort of the basic um, case law and the, deci- the decision. We'll keep up to date on that because it's really important to be able to, um, you know, go to the second level in the discussion. If, you know, somebody's, if you say something about church and state and somebody asks you another question about it, you want to be able to, you know, say, well, you know, answer whatever their objection is. So study up on it, learn about it. And, um, you know, basically, um, you have to, you know, commit yourself to, um, to being knowledgeable, being able to express yourself when it comes to these ideas. That's great. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for talking today and uh, just giving us, giving us something to think about. Appreciate it.